But I'm, I'm very gratified to see so many people here, not just because uh, you're here during a game, but uh, also because uh, I, I've generally noticed that the, having the word rural in the title of a talk tends not to bring out the large electrified crowds. Um, and uh, if you put rural and development together uh, in a title, um, it really uh, tends, tend, tends to kill things. Uh, the, there's a magazine in London called The Spectator, uh, that periodically has uh, contests of various kinds. And one year they had a contest of, um, to ask people to uh, uh, invent a book title for a book that was likely to be remaindered uh, by the end of the week. And the, uh, the hands-down winner was Canada, friendly giant to the north. Uh, but a close runner-up was rural development in Kenya, problems and prospects. Um, and I have my, uh, my theories about why it is that uh, development generally, uh, and rural development in particular, uh, uh, doesn't attract as much attention as it does, uh, given the, uh, the tremendous influence that it's had on so many millions and millions of people uh, around the world. Uh, and I'd like to give an illustration that, uh, that perhaps you're familiar with uh, here, here in uh, Ohio. Um, and that is uh, the reaction that Americans have after... Uh, presidential elections. Uh, usually after every major presidential election, and particularly after the last two, there's a couple of weeks of recriminations about uh, the way the electoral process works in this country. Uh, and uh, the Electoral College in particular, the winner-take-all system, where certain states, I won't name any states in particular, seem to have a disproportionate influence in the outcome, uh, seems to, uh, seems to uh, come in for some criticism. A friend of mine, however, uh, argues uh, that uh, you know, eliminating the electoral co college system, despite all of its uh, unfairnesses, would be a tremendous mistake. And she says this based on years of experience living abroad where, uh, where she's watched uh, other elections unfold. And she says that it would ruin the best night on American television, which is elect election night. Uh, and there's a particular reason why American elections are so much more telegenic uh, than elections in other countries. And that's because if, if you look at elections in Europe or other countries that have an undifferentiated tally, election night is simply an accumulation, almost like an, a thermometer kind of going up. Whereas on the American screen on election night, um, there's these states, blue and red, which are flipping over. And it's, and it's that element, the element of these states changing hands um, that provides the drama. It provides cues for commentators to decide uh, what it is and to begin to construct a story uh, about the outcome of the election. It provides uh, the kind of drama, and people begin to say things like, well, it's that affirmative action initiative in Michigan that's causing uh, this decisive state to go in this way, or it's uh, um, you know, uh, a uh, gay rights initiative in, uh, in, in, in Vermont that's causing uh, that state to go in this, in this particular way. Um, you, you know, it's, it, it creates a scenario that naturally kind of assigns blame, that, that identifies who the determining constituencies are, uh, and that kind of sets up an agenda uh, for the next four years. You know, this, this determines what the key issues are in the, in, the, in the campaign. And I've often thought that economic development as a subject of historical research uh, suffers from the same liability that European elections do as a dramatic element. Because development is conceived of as a kind of a steady or not so steady uh, upward march of various indices, gross national product, uh, literacy rates, population, per capita incomes, hydrocarbon emissions. Uh, 
And apart from the Marshall Plan, uh, whose drama really comes from its external context of the origins of the Cold War uh, and the division of Europe, um, rather than from any internal conflicts, um, the story of development is one of a series of disjointed but overlapping programs uh, carried on by a continually rotating cast of uh, specialists, economists, engineers, agronomists, none of whom are terribly colorful in their own right. So development lacks fundamental ingredients of historical drama. It lacks pivotal characters. It lacks connections between big ideas and local events. It lacks a sense of beginning and ending. Uh, and above all, it lacks narrative tension. Uh, there are no opposing points of view, clashes of wills, winners, losers. And I was well into the research and the writing on this project when I realized that I needed something like the red states and the blue states, some way of segmenting this story uh, to allow for openings for interpretation, uh, but also some way to represent uh, this tension and conflict that's really at the heart of the development process as something other than the friction of trial and error, which is how the social science literature on it often presents it. Luckily, for the modernizers and for me. Modernizers and nation builders never did see the process of transforming traditional societies as the long, hard slog that we see it as in retrospect. What sustained them through the 1950s and the 1960s was a belief that they were on the verge of a major historical turning point, that the key uh, to rapid and economic and social change was uh, ready to give at any moment. Where they differed uh, was on what that key was and which way it should be turned. While policymakers and social scientists spoke of the changes they sought in terms of kind of broad gauge, almost universal uh, renovations of patterns of life and work and culture, their actual efforts were characterized by a search for a single factor, a bottleneck stimulus, or as Alberto Hirschman called it, an inducement mechanism, something that could give modernizers a handle to allow them to trigger the transformation. This key or mechanism, what I call throughout the book a developmental object, gave me the plot device that I needed to tell the story of modernization in rural Asia, uh, because it was these developmental objects that were the focus of contention and drama. Developmental objects were conceived of as targets of interventions. They were concepts or persons or things on which resources could be concentrated and, um, uh, and the control and transformation of which is, was expected to have powerful catalytic effects on the habits and attitudes and efficiency of entire societies. Developmental objects also provided a ready gauge of progress. One of the things, first things of, uh, involved in constituting something as a developmental object was coming up with some way of measuring it. In my book, such objects include the village, which was the target of numerous schemes, including community development, strategic hamlets, the Peace Corps, and so forth, uh, as a target of transformation. The peasant, who was subjected to numerous attempts to renovate his psychology and his habits. Water, which was to be controlled and apportioned through TVA-style dam projects, but other things as well, 
such as population, rice, and India itself. The quest for a developmental object reflected the technological optimism of the era, but it was also driven by fear. American officials were deeply apprehensive that American ideals and social science and technology, the techniques of American influence, uh, had no real bearing in the alien environment of Asia, particularly rural Asia. Because the first point to be made about the problem of underdevelopment as conceived by American planners in the early Cold War was that underdevelopment meant rural. This was a point that development economists felt compelled to remind readers of over and over again. Paul N. Rosenstein Rodin wrote in 1944 in a seminal article, certain characteristics are common to all backward areas. They are all, roughly speaking, agrarian countries. Or John Kenneth Galbraith writing in 1951, the first and very commonplace observation to be made about the underdeveloped and unprogressive countries is that they are all agricultural. Or Chester Bowles writing to Dean Rusk in 1961, during the next five to ten years, the greatest single challenge to the American vision and leadership is likely to come from the rural areas. The peasants who control the food supply and constitute a substantial majority of all underdeveloped countries are in a crucially important political position. So one could talk idly about modernizing agriculture or improving village life, but at a very fundamental level, um, social science and strategic theory all drew binary distinctions between a modern urban sphere and a traditional rural sphere. To talk about modernizing the rural was, in, in essence, an oxymoron. Uh, rural cannot be modern. For Parsons, for Redfield, for Durkheim, for John F. Kennedy, rurality and modernity were antagonistic categories. And one could go through a number of different disciplines uh, and talk about how sociology, for instance, during this period, drew a distinction between sociology, which developed theories and rules for understanding social behavior uh, in one setting, was separate, disciplinarily separate, from rural sociology, in which an entirely different set of rules and prescriptions was laid out. Economists had proven by 1950 that the rational economic actor on whom all econometric models were based did not exist among farmers generally, but particularly did not exist among Asian farmers. Galbraith warned that Western doctrines were of little use in a setting where, quote, technical progress as we understand it is abnormal and in some sense unwanted. And outside of Japan, non-communist Asia was almost completely rural, an immense terrain without roads, newspapers, consulates, or statistics. It was, according to Atchison, an unknown world. Unknown because Americans, as modern urban people, had lost touch with rurality. Richard Hofstetter said that America was born in the country, but has moved to the city. And he was one of many scholars at mid-century who perceived a dangerous divide of history, affluence, and knowledge isolating the United States from Asia. With only 11% of Americans living on the land, David Potter noted, 
metropolitan values define the national character. To David Reisman, the city-bred American was two stages of personality development removed from the tradition-directed Asian peasant, making meaningful communication all but impossible. William O. Douglas, the Supreme Court Justice, wrote that the gulf between American between America and Asia seems so vast, so unfathomable as to be startling. There often seems to be no nexus of understanding. George Kennan felt this distance acutely during his 1948 tour of the Far East. The vast social gulf separating urban and rural ways of life, he warned, threw the whole notion of U.S. leadership into doubt. We are deceiving ourselves and others when we pretend to have answers to the problems which agitate many of these Asiatic peoples, he wrote. That estrangement had troubling implications uh, for the United States' capacity to intervene and even to imagine interventions in the contested Eurasian heartland. Communism, according to Reinhold Niebuhr, has a tremendous original advantage in the dying, sleeping cultures of the Orient where Western systems of belief could gain no purchase. We are in danger, therefore, of facing the international class struggle with an uncomprehending fury or complete dismay. As late as 1958, the authors of the best-selling policy novel, The Ugly American, still beheld, quote, an Asia where we stand relatively mute, locked in the cities, misunderstanding the temper and needs of the Asians. Christopher Bailey, the great historian of British India, argues in his book, Empire and Information, that empires periodically suffer what he calls knowledge panics, moments when it becomes disastrously clear that all the old systems of interpretation and analysis, the concepts and categories uh, that, America ha- that, 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 that countries have, empires have for reading the world, no longer bear any meaningful relationship to reality. And one could think about 9-11 as such a moment of knowledge panic in the United States. But I contend that the United States suffered such a knowledge panic in the aftermath of the fall of China in 1949. The search for developmental objects was part of an effort to invent new conceptual categories uh, in order to provide some grounding for analysis and action. And I want to illustrate this through a story of one developmental object, land. In the aftermath of World War II, The United States used land redistribution, land reform, or it planned to, as a political tool in a number of settings. The Morgenthau Plan in Germany, uh, which didn't pan out, and MacArthur's land reform in Japan, which did. Both aimed to break feudal, uh, feudal aristocracies by stripping away their political and financial base. In Korea, the occupation government of General John Hodges redistributed Japanese lands in an attempt to, quote, create a middle-of-the-road coalition to isolate the communists politically. In the aftermath of the Chinese Revolution, land reform acquired an entirely new meaning and urgency. In 1950, the Truman administration pushed a land reform resolution in the United Nations, funded a major land reform in Taiwan, and, quote, and made a worldwide land reform as a priority for, for the Point Four program. Atchison and other commentators presented Land reform is an essential countermove against communist ideology. But the main spokesman for this policy was Wolf Ladoshinsky, a State Department expert who was on loan to the uh, Supreme Commander 
in, uh, in Japan, the occupation government of Japan. Ladoshinsky had a leading role in designing Japan's land reform and a consultative role in Korea and Taiwan. Uh, but in his public appearances and articles in Foreign Affairs, the Saturday Evening Post, and Saturday Review, various popular magazines, uh, he articulated the, la- the rationale for land reform as anti-communist strategy. James Allison, the American ambassador to Taiwan, dubbed him Mr. Land Reform. And I should probably explain a little bit about who Ladoshinsky was. Uh, he was a Im- uh, Russian immigrant to the United States uh, of, of Jewish ex- extraction. His fa- he was a victim of the Soviet uh, land reform in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. Uh, his father had been a uh, major uh, landowner in the Jewish Pale uh, of the Ukraine, and uh, his, uh, his family lands had been uh, redistributed to Russian soldiers. He walked out of, uh, walked apparently across Poland uh, to, to get out of... Uh, uh, Russia uh, came to the United States um, as a uh, teenager, um, went to Columbia University and studied economics under Rexford Tugwell, um, and uh, did his um, dissertation on the Russian land reform. And his dissertation attracted some uh, tremendous attention. It was serialized in uh, in uh, uh, various political magazines and uh, 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 received uh, a favorable mention in the New York Times because it broke with um, a generally favorable impression that had been circulating in the American press of Soviet collective farming. It made a strong argument against uh, Soviet collective farming. Uh, Ladoshinsky then became a kind of reconnaissance, uh, agricultural reconnaissance officer uh, for the Agriculture Department, um, uh, traveling throughout the Japanese Empire and Southeast Asia in the pre-war era. And initially, these agricultural reconnaissance missions were to uh, find new seeds and to kind of check out um, agricultural practices that might be adopted in the United States and also to scout for openings for American farm exports. Uh, but Ladoshinsky's writings uh, increasingly turned as the war approached to the way in which agriculture and the Japanese organization of agriculture fueled its militaristic uh, policies. Um, and that analysis made him a, uh, a key, a, a formative individual in preoccupation planning. And he was sort of brought into the uh, uh, preoccupation planning and then eventually into the occupation itself. In his articles, uh, Ladoshinsky portrayed land as the primary, even the sole motivating factor behind Uh, the peasant unrest that fueled communist expansion. Industry, he argued, has made but a small dent in the character of Asia. Asia's problem is the problem of land. The communists, he said, had harnessed the revolutionary potential of land hunger. But as a tool, land was politically neutral, and he urged the United States to take it up. That judgment rested on an interpretation of the peasant. Political economists from Liszt to Marx, Schumpeter, had posed the peasant as a kind of archetype of anti-modernity. Leisure-addicted, stubborn, tradition-bound, instinctively communal. Ladoshinsky instead portrayed the peasant as an individualist, entrepreneurial, productive, straight-talking, ready to fight for his rights. By getting on the right side of the land issue, the United States would recruit what he called the common man of Asia, as an ally, simply because his own interest lay in the same direction. The landlord, however, was a relic of feudalism, 
an uneconomic man, according to Ladishinsky, capriciously aiding any empire or ideology that preserved his privilege. Owen Lattimore, an academic ally of Ladishinsky, explained that the landlord has a pre-modern mind. His feudal conception of the nature of property was anti-capitalist. Justice William O. Douglas, again, agreed that feudalism was feeding the fires of communism in the Middle East and Asia. It was, this is how uh, Douglas defined feudalism, government of the landlords, by the landlords, and for the landlords. Ladishinsky portrayed landlords as agents of a parasitic city. The city he saw as, as alien in the Asian environment. It was in the city that self-indulgent, educated elites, who he described as all dressed up and no place to go, swelled the ranks of the communist chorus out of sheer frustration induced by lack of suitable occupations. Reform would thus ally client states and American foreign policy to the individualistic logic of the peasant. It would also make farmers more tractable, the state more responsible. It would recreate the New Deal order in which the state functioned as a broker, mediating between groups and structuring incentives. But Ladishinsky did more than offer a program. He offered a narrative of rural progress that identified enemies and friends and made the peasant into a comprehensible, even familiar figure to Americans. Barbara Ward, the New York Times columnist and economist commentator who would later become Lyndon Johnson's speechwriter, wrote in 1950 in a seminal article that Americans needed to frame development in terms of stories that linked their own benevolence and essential sense of fairness to the aspirations of Asians. The title of our article was these are days for poetry, not statistics. And Ladishinsky provided that kind of poetry. Ladishinsky eschewed statistics. Although he believed that reforms could increase productivity, that was not its main objective. Although he believed that owner cultivators, as he called them, would adapt to new technology, that too was not the aim. And although he believed yeoman farmers would ultimately contribute their share in taxes, Land reforms called for easing tax rates on farmers and crops and even for government subsidies for crops to bolster farm incomes. So the beneficiary of modernization in Ladishinsky's scheme was to be the peasant. The peasant would receive more independence, more income, more political rights. The cost of those benefits would be paid by others. Consumers would experience higher prices for food, urban industrialists, might face upward pressure on wages. As a result, the state would have to shift its tax base and it would face constraints on its power. Finally, the entire landlord class would be dispossessed. Rights rooted in inheritance and contract would be displaced by rights rooted in productive use. This set Ladishinsky at odds with powerful forces in the countries targeted for land reform. And a number of scholars, many scholars, in fact, have remarked on the futility of efforts to push governments to go against their prime constituencies. But what's less noticed is that apart from the special situation of Vietnam, the United States did not initiate or fund any land reform programs in Asia after 1954. Ladishinsky's uh, concept uh, also tangled with potent American interests, ideals, and myths, which ultimately brought about his undoing 
and pushed land reform to the back of the development agenda. You might guess that Ladyshinsky's journalistic admirers did not include the Wall Street Journal or the Chicago Tribune. They were absolutely appalled that the United States supported wholesale confiscations of private property uh, abroad. And they hinted that Japan's land reform was merely a prelude to confiscations in the United States. Ladyshinsky tried to counter this in a number of ways by situating land reform in a historical context of the United States and the United States' own evolution. Uh, but the parallels he drew uh, to 40 acres and a mule, to Henry George, to Puerto Rico's land reform during the New Deal were awkward at best. He emphasized the end state, the family-sized farm idealized by the New Deal. But that version of agriculture's future had powerful detractors as well. So debates, the point I want to make is that debates about modernization of agriculture in Asia ran parallel to debates about the modernization of agriculture in the United States. And those reached a critical stage with the election of President Dwight Eisenhower. Partly because of New Deal farm policies, the family farm was rapidly giving way to large-scale, mechanized, corporate farms. Agronomists, land-grant colleges, seed companies, and farm exporters were invested in an evolution of agriculture away from subsidies to maintain income and towards subsidies to maintain, to increase productivity. Productivity was also on the mind of Asia watchers who saw surging population, not land hunger, as the cause of instability. In this view, the developmental object was not land, but food. The gauge of progress was an increase in yields through mechanization, breeding, irrigation, and consolidation of holdings, not breaking up big holdings. Senator Walter Judd, always a pithy senator, said it best when he said, what we need is more food, not more dirt. The man who articulated this alternate view of agricultural modernization was Agriculture Secretary Ezra Taft Benson, a Mormon rancher from Idaho and a longtime critic of Roosevelt-era reforms. Benson proposed a radical break with New Deal, the New Deal structure of production limits, price supports, and parity, subsidies that held the ratio of farm to industrial inco incomes at a benchmark set in, uh, between the 1910 and 1914 crop years. Parity was a stopgap, he said, to meet the emergency of the, of the Depression and to mobilize surpluses for war. But while defense industries had been demobilized after the war, no action had been taken yet to reconvert agriculture to a peacetime economy. Subsidies encouraged huge surpluses of so-called basic commodities, corn, wheat, rice, sugar, and tobacco. He proposed a 1954 farm bill based on a concept he called freedom to farm, which would phase out controls and handouts and change the patterns of production and restore competition. Critics labeled it a throwback. But Benson presented his plan as an overdue renovation that would place farmers in the mainstream of technological and economic change. For the first time since the populist John Kenneth Galbraith said, farm policy is being viewed in Washington as a matter of conflicting ideologies. The radical price-fixing policies of the Democrats versus the conservative alternative of the free market. Benson's challenge was the last time 
USDA seriously questioned the advantages of a permanent policy of farm price supports. And the implications of this for the Archer Daniels Midland Corporation and uh, the ethanol policy we have today are, of course, tremendously uh, obvious. Um, and uh, uh, ultimately, uh, Benson was defeated. Um, but more immediately, uh, it produced, Benson's opposition produced an uproar within an influential block of rural voters uh, by pitting the vested interests of powerful farm organizations uh, against cherished images of rural independence. In speeches and in testimony, Benson argued that parity embedded farmers in a tragic narrative by applying subsidies to recreate an imagined golden age of agriculture. The agriculture department froze farming into an imagined past rather than leading it toward an open future. Acreage controls, he argued, paid farmers not to use their hard work to grow more food. Benson worried about the moral decline of the farmer, once the strongest bulwark of our way of life, he said, now penned in and fed through the bars by his government. Mechanization, electrification, scientific methods should give farmers confidence in the future, but instead they were disturbed and worried. Benson's future envisioned high-tech farms linked to sophisticated distribution networks responsive to changes in, in the global food market. He proposed what he called a modern parity, which would cushion transitory mar market shocks like weather and drought and things like that, while aligning prices with broad trends in demand. Scientific and market research would increase consumption by lowering costs, devising new packaging, diversifying diets, and finding industrial uses for crops. USDA agents would aggressively seek overseas markets for U.S. surpluses. Farm organizations, of course, branded it as a plan to liquidate the traditional family farm in favor of corporate agribusiness. And, and Benson didn't necessarily object to that characterization. Uh, he, at one point, and, and this was, this was a, a major political explosion when he said this, was that uh, family farmers should look for jobs in factories. Uh, instead, they should give up their farms uh, if, they're, if they're marginal. Um, but he, there was a constituency behind this. The 1954 Farm Bill pitted the farm vote, which was tremendously powerful in those days before Carr versus the United States shifted the uh, electoral balance in the United States, uh, pitted the farm vote against an unusual coalition of old guard Republicans and urban liberals, such as John F. Kennedy, who supported the aim of lowering consumer food prices. It ended in almost total defeat for Benson, but at a moment, a crucial moment in the development of modernization theory, policymakers put forward a new ideal of the modern farm, its scale, its virtues, its relationship to science and the city. In 1954 and 1955, there were two high-profile security cases that exposed the essentially political nature of security clearance policies in Washington, D.C., and effectively destroyed the federal loyalty program as a major turning point in McCarthyism. The first was the Oppenheimer case, in which the inventor of the atomic bomb was denied a clearance. The second was the Latashinsky case, which even more preposterously questioned the anti-communist credentials of Mr. Land Reform. Both cases dominated the headlines for weeks and evoked charges of anti-Semitism and involved conflict over the authenticity and control of scientific expertise. The immediate pretext for the Latashinsky case was the transfer of the Office of Foreign Agriculture from the State Department to Agriculture in a bureaucratic shakeup following the election. 
Benson's security director took a look at Ladishinsky's clearance, saw his Russian background, inciting his unreliability as an immigrant, um, revoked his security clearance. But there were few observers who saw this case as anything other than a projection of Benson's freedom to farm into the foreign sphere. Senator Hubert Humphrey protested that Ladishinsky's firing indicated a repudiation of land reform worldwide. The National Farmers Union regarded parity at home and land reform abroad as inseparable parts of a global strategy for rural prosperity, and it attacked Benson for showing, quote, the same favoritism to landlord-dominated agriculture in U.S. foreign policy that he is pushing in U.S. domestic policy. Well, some people criticized attempts to export Bensonism to Asia. The Chicago Tribune warned of the opposite. Social levelers, they editorialized, might want to see the pilot experiment introduced in Japan extended here if conditions could be rendered favorable. Attacks on Ladishinsky played up his New York education, his Russian and Jewish origins, and implicitly his cosmopolitanism, implicitly questioning his authority in the rural sphere. Why can't the State Department get a real agricultural expert from one of our agricultural colleges, one congressman wanted to know? Benson maintained that the issue was technical expertise. Ladishinsky said, didn't know enough about U.S. agriculture, and it was agriculture we were interested in, not land reform. Ladishinsky's opponents also applied a business metaphor to agriculture, but where Ladishinsky saw the peasant as entrepreneur, they identified him as a wage laborer. The dispossessed landlords, according to Eugene Duman, one of Ladishinsky's chief uh, accusers, uh, the, uh, the landlords were a politically reliable managerial class. One of the, print, uh, 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 and the, one of the chief effects of land reform, he said, was to pauperize an element which could be counted on to resist the communists. According to USDA officials, land reform simply burdened peasants with taxes, marketing, and all the paperwork that goes with running a farm. The landlord was more suited to these tasks. These roles aligned with Benson's picture of the modern farmer as, quote, in truth, a businessman responsible for using capital widely and maintaining a skilled labor force. So for Ladishinsky, land was the source of the modern farmer's independence and self-worth. It was his stake in the polity. It was his claim to unabridged citizenship. But for Benson, land was capital to be managed for the best return. Within Benson's critique lay a vision of a different way forward for Asian agriculture, a path toward large, consolidated operations guided by science and the market. The Ladishinsky case marked a turning point in rural development, a moment when the image of the modernized countryside changed. Land reform envisioned progress as the renovation of the peasant, the enhancement of his status, his health, his productivity, and his allegiance. After 1955, the goals of rural development would increasingly be expressed in terms of yields, resources, and revenues. Walt Whitman Rostow and other development economists regarded agriculture as essentially external to the modern sector they sought to build. The purpose of modernization was not to create a thriving, contented rural population, but to depopulate the countryside. The peasant's future lay in the city. As laborers, as a laborer in new industries stimulated by foreign aid. 
There he could buy, at discounted prices, wheat and rice grown on mechanized, irrigated farms. The Latashinsky controversy sputtered on for two more years. Benson, still on the ropes from his farm bill defeat, eventually de-escalated, allowing Dulles to dispatch Latashinsky to the safe distance of Saigon, where despite a close personal relationship to No Din Diem, he was unable to coax more than token concessions from the regime. Rostow later urged President Kennedy to keep him in place, since Latashinsky, he said, was a wise old boy on Asia as a whole. But by 1961, strategic hamlets had taken a central role in pacification and replaced land reform. Diplomats were on notice that advocating land reforms too stridently could hurt a career. No development remedy is ever entirely discredited, however and the World Bank and U.S. agencies still employ land reform as a tool in post-socialist and post-conflict reconstruction. But in, 19, in the 1960s, these methods were subordinated to an all-out drive to increase outputs of grain. The development decade would be marked by days of statistics, not poetry. Thanks. I'll entertain any questions you have. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just uh, you're referring to this debate, Ezra Taftinson versus the other side of 1950. I'm not recalling your language specifically, but but you were speaking of the technological future uh, and so forth, which Benson advocated. But in a way, it was uh, the way the train had left the station. Uh, Hybridization. Uh, corn yield in the United States uh, at the end of the Civil War, the first year that the U.S. Department of Agriculture started taking statistics, 25 bushels per acre. Yeah. That was exactly the same yield in the middle 1960s. Uh, uh, 1936 or thereabout, that's when farmers started to use uh, uh, hybrid seeds. Uh, my father got a very, yeah. very low Social Security number thanks to deep hassling corn. Yeah. Yeah. Over, yeah. Which was going to uh, uh, no, I agree. With, knock I, the bottom out right. of this whole land control type of approach from from the New Deal. By, yeah. By the early 1950s, it was completely inoperable. Yeah. Because farmers could. That's why I say this. This was a kind of a last chance. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure it even was that much of a chance. But uh, but you're right. The the New Deal the New Deal structure really set um, a powerful constituencies behind these so-called basic commodities. Uh, I mean, what Benson was envisioning was a much more diversified agriculture where we would uh, downscale the amount of corn we were growing, the amount of wheat we were growing, grow many more different types of vegetables, really diversify uh, the genetic base and the crop base uh, of, the, uh, uh, of, of American agriculture, emphasize truck farming, uh, for instance, uh, and various other kind of uh, marketable commodities. Uh, and you're right. I mean, what happened was co big corporations, and the Archer Daniels Midland Corporation and uh, Cargill were as yet in their infancy at this point. Um, but uh, what you start to see by the 1960s is powerful uh, grain uh, exporters, essentially, um, becoming the major political constituency for continuing the New Deal system, which is no longer serving family farmers, but which essentially is boosting production for these gigantic uh, food processing uh, companies. 
Uh, and so what you get is high, high fructose corn syrup in, in all our sodas. That's, yeah, that's, that's the, the that's end result. That's the artifact largely of our sugar policy. It's been insane, but mm -hmm. uh, let's also keep in mind the consumer side, which is the most important side. Uh, if you look at the, if you look at the, uh, the course of prices uh, and so forth, uh, between Well, and a big, a big part of my project is to analyze just how much of an accomplishment that was. I mean, what you're saying is true, that uh, uh, during, the, during the Green Revolution, food production ran ahead of population growth, just as it has throughout human history since the Neolithic era. There has not been a Malthusian ceiling that has been hit by, by the human race. Uh, and it, it, it is a kind of an open question as to whether the Green Revolution actually did this, um, because... Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt that it's estimated to, to save a billion lives, you know, for starters. Yeah, that's the figure that's often often put out, that, uh, that uh, Norman Borlaug is responsible for saving billions of lives. And, and basically, it's a historical counterfactual. It says that there would have been a huge famine in the world in the 1970s had, uh, the, wor ha had the Green Revolution not occurred. Uh, and it run, get, runs against, and the, the, the person whose argument it runs most directly against is that of Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who says that, you know, famine actually has nothing to do with population. Well, so there, there of, would not have been a famine as of in the, the 1970s. 1960s, the part of the world with the highest incidence of food insecurity, the place where there was the most uh, uh, starvation, was East Asia. Yeah, and, certainly. And there were, there were a lot of famines uh, during that period in East Asia, but there was also a Cold War in East Asia going on at the same time. And what Amartya Sen says is that well, famine is political. You know, yeah, there was also a lot of repression uh, in, that, in that part of the world at the same time, and, and, and that causes famine too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Right. Well, those developmental objects you're talking about there are uh, natural resources of, ver of various kinds, which are conceived of uh, not as objects, but as, as kind of concepts almost, so the genetic uh, um, legacy of rice. But one might also think in the current moment of women as a developmental object, and the Gemina Bank and the recent Nobel Peace Prize was given to the, this notion of micro-lending. And the, the kind of rule that I see in the emerging in the 1950s and 1960s follows through. You choose an object which you think of as most traditional. So it's the peasant, for instance, who is the most traditional object, or the village uh, that's the most traditional thing. And, and you kind of try to imagine some way in which if we, you modernize that, um, that would really kind of bring all the rest of the country along with it. And um, the emphasis on women almost conceives of them as uh, uh, intrinsically traditional. Um, and by somehow altering their behavior, um, you can you can sort of create the kind of rupture that they're looking for in development. Yeah. Oh, um, how much difference do you think American agricultural policies actually made uh, to the lives of ordinary peasants in Asia in the 50s, 60s? It made a huge difference. It made a huge difference, and it, it, the main difference it made was 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 in creating the megacities. Uh, that you see in Asia right now. Uh, I mean, the effect of American agricultural policies were, in effect, to depopulate uh, the countryside, to, start, to turn the countryside into a food-producing um, uh, machine. And it enabled urbanization in two different ways. One is it disemployed large numbers of people in the countryside. Uh, but it also provided the cheap food that enabled low wage rates in the cities uh, for factories and created the jobs that drew them uh, to the cities. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think there's much disagreement on, on the sort of general effects of those trends. Uh, but what I try to show in my book uh, is the degree to which those were intentional decisions. Um, it, it's often presented in the development literature and in the social science literature as an, as an inadvertent uh, side effect. You know, the problems of urbanization and urban slums and, and these sorts of things and the depopulation of the countryside and the accidental disemployment of gleaners and other people in the countryside. But in fact, going back to the 1930s, you can see writing from people within the Rockefeller and the Ford Foundation talking about how our design here is to uh, depopulate the countryside, to essentially create a kind of agricultural revolution in Asia like we have going on in the United States. Uh, where the farmers are, are giving up their farms and the farms are being consolidated and, and, uh, and, uh, and the farmers are moving to the cities. Well, there's, uh, with, in India in particular, there's a, there's a large degree of overlap. There is resistance, uh, certainly, uh, from Asia, but it is, it is at the subnational level. Uh, national governments and planning authorities really do start to think very early on, and planning begins in India as early as the 1920s uh, for the future, and, and uh, as independence gets closer, you start to have more and more writing about the countryside and the, problem, the agrarian problem as they see it. Uh, and they really do see it as a, as a problem of surplus labor in the countryside. And, and they also see this as their primary asset, too. And this is 
uh, an important aspect of their thinking is that uh, they're looking to raise capital to fuel uh, national development, and they're searching around for resources to harness for capital. And one resource they see is what they see, what they imagine to be uh, idle labor in the countryside. Sixty percent they see uh, sort of sixty percent unemployment uh, in the countryside. And if you could somehow reorganize labor, or reorganize the countryside uh, in ways to render it more efficient and more mechanized, you would essentially free up this labor to do other tasks. Let me follow up then with India. Sure. Uh, but it seems to me that LBJ's program sort of brings both of those approaches that you're talking about, Benson and Ramasinghe, together. Um, certainly his use of the CL480 program is designed to move India towards a more diverse, scientific, technologically oriented food program. But at the same time, uh, I, I'm arguing elsewhere that it's because of his own background as a farmer. Johnson, I think, is driven in no small extent by a desire to tie these people to the land and create a commitment to the society in, in Cold War context. Mm -hmm. uh, that he sees this is a way to invest them as sort of small-scale capitalists yeah. in the Cold War. Would you disagree with that assessment? Does, does one yeah. approach predominate with LBJ? Uh, well, I see, a, I see a temporal distinction. I see that pro, uh, approach predominating up until about mid-1966 uh, uh, when you have the, the war in India. Uh, and there is a substantial what uh, um, Comer calls a, uh, a quiet new look at American policy in India, um, or agricultural policy in particular. And it, in fact, coincides with a kind of shakeup in domestic agricultural policy at home. And what you have is uh, um, Orville Freeman, the agriculture secretary, uh, turns out to be a major figure in these discussions, partly because he's head of PL 480. Uh, and, uh, and he's arguing simultaneously for changing policies in India, but also for changing uh, policies in the United States. And this also has to do with uh, Carr versus the United States, the decision which essentially broke the back of agricultural political power in the United States. The farm vote in the United States is, is de-emphasized. And Orville Freeman begins to uh, conceptualize agriculture uh, in ways, and his economists tell him that you can actually export more American grain and more American food products if Asia were to radically increase the amount of grain they produce there. Because what they find, and this is, this is true about uh, uh, food demand, is that the more people eat, the more they want to eat, uh, and the more high-end products they'll eat. So they're imagining already uh, sort of exporting Big Macs instead of exporting uh, you know, tankers full of grain. Uh, so they're, they're imagining kind of pra packaged products coming from the United States. Uh, being exported, and it's a kind of uh, far, you know, far into the future. But they realize that the New Deal farm programs can't politically survive uh, past the decade. Yeah. Yeah. And did those debates about the Asian peasant family in any, any way reflect anxieties about the family in the United States at the time? Well, I hadn't thought about the second part of that question, but uh, you're right. It, uh, the peasant family does come to be seen as a developmental object very much in the context of uh, fertility change. 
Uh, and this happens in the context of a social science development called the um, um, demographic transition, uh, which is invented around 1946. Um, and you begin to have discussions about the way in which um, population growth is very much keyed to other things, such as education, rights for women, uh, family size, and so forth. And the, the way they conceptualize the problem is that, it, you know, in Hillary Clinton's word, it takes a village to raise a child. And what we need to do is kind of break up that village um, because that way people will stop having children. Uh, if you start to atomize the family into middle-class families, essentially you create a consumer ethic. Uh, and by doing that, and let's think, I think we can think of some ways in which that parallels debates in the United States. I mean, it was the, the, the nuclear family was very much uh, keyed in with the notion of a consumer-driven economy uh, rather than a producer's economy. It took place in a, in, in a number of different contexts. I mean, Congress was certainly a major theater for debating these sorts of things. And about, um, and this is all kind of couched in this sort of 1950s, and I think it's still prevalent uh, rhetoric about the uh, the farmer being the essential, you know, uh, source of all true wealth in the United States, and the kind of producer's ethic uh, surrounding uh, surrounding the farmer. Um, it uh, it takes place in farm journals of various kinds uh, as well, uh, and occasionally spills out into into newspaper editorials when thing, when the annual kind of farm appropriations would come up. So that's kind of the the general um, level of the of the discourse. But I think you had a, a kind of a deeper question than just how big was it? Uh, was well, I mean, it sounds like it's at, at heart. A, Got two sides trying to decide what what the really sort of liberal position is right. with regard to these. And yeah, it's and that's right it's it's a it's a little bit open. Yeah, point. you know, is this? It's a little bit open because liberalism is starting to change. Liberalism is starting, for instance, to become more urban. Uh, I mean, if you look at FDR's um, uh, economic policies, at least in, in the first hundred days in particular, he's absolutely convinced that the sources of the depression are in the rural sector. Um, and that the farm sector's health is essential to the health of the general polity. And that faith, I think, is starting to be seriously shaken by the mid-1960s, where you start to see that you know, the farm sector is really the subsidiary sector. And economic theory, I think, really reflects that notion. But it strikes me, too, as being, if, if you're going to look at these land, large landholders as a developmental object, perhaps, 
you know, are they or are they a feudal vestige? And it really has yeah. great significance yeah. Actually, about whether or not they're an engagement. In, in Ladishinsky's mind, they're not large, and maybe this gets gets to your question. They're not necessarily large. It's the it's the attitude, it's the mindset of ownership that is the problem. In fact, he refers, in Japan in particular, there were what he called molecular landlords whose holdings were almost impossibly small, but they were receiving rents from these and living in the city. Uh, for instance, it was quite common. Is would a retiree, for instance, would live in the city off of proceeds from a rice plot in the countryside. And, and it was that, uh, that, that kind of uh, perverted, as he saw it, relationship between the city and the countryside that was at fault. That kind of rentier society, yeah. Um, I'm curious about the issue of famine and if specific famines during the uh, 40s and the 50s uh, served as uh, foci for political leverage for either side of uh, this debate. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, to the extent that that was always hovering in the background, um, that notion that um, um, you know, you do have a, a problem with, with producing a lot of food. And uh, Ladishinsky is answering that in various ways. He does argue, uh, and a lot of other people argue as well, and there's a lot of research on this, whether or not the uh, a small uh, land to the tiller program of independent uh, farmer grows more. Um, and he argues that they do. Uh, and so he's forced to sort of shift his discourse. And it, you can tell it's uncomfortable for him because he doesn't like to talk about it in those terms. Uh, but he does argue that this is going to help us to solve famines in the future because it's going to make things more diversified and, and, uh, and farmers are going to produce more uh, as a result of this. Uh, but it, it, it is a debate. The, the debate over famine is somewhat detached uh, from, from that debate. There's a parallel thing going on with, with regard to famine relief, which is a debate over the global movement of food, um, which you know, ultimately ends in PL 480 as a, as a solution to it. Yeah. Both sides in this debate seek to kind of enlist technology in different ways. I mean, the New Deal era farm programs do use technology, as you mentioned. I mean, they, 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 um, they focus the technology on these key crops, uh, on, the, on these main crops. What Benson wanted to do was to diversify technology in various ways to create, you know, greenhouse farming and various other new technologies which were underdeveloped, as he saw it, uh, to diversify the crop base. The way uh, Ladishinsky talks about technology is that he argues that technology ought to be uh, geared to the Asian environment, which he sees as, as very different from the United States. He points out, for instance, that Asian farms are more productive than American farms uh, on the whole. 
uh, if you me measure productivity per acre, uh, which is not the way it's measured in, uh, by people in the United States who are measuring it more or less per labor hour. Uh, and he says it's, it's because there's almost this gardening mentality in Asia where you till intensively on very, very small plots. Uh, and you know, the productivity per acre is much, much higher, he says, in Asia than it is in the yes. United States. Yes. And so you need, you need a different type of technology that would be appropriate to that labor and land environment. That's addressed by Yuchiro Hayami and Laverne Rattan, the, 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 mm -hmm. the induced innovation hypothesis, which is that agricultural development always proceeds along the path of raising the productivity of the scarcer factor of production, be that land in the case of Asia or labor in the case of, of the United States. Mm -hmm. that you wind up with a very similar result? Or is the Cold War, which brings America's attention to this issue of development in Asia in a way that it probably would not have otherwise, yeah. something that fundamentally changes the direction and, and pace mm -hmm. of change? I see the Cold War interlarded throughout this entire thing. I mean, the fact that this debate took place in the context of a security clearance uh, debate is, is, is central to this. I mean, it, it structures the very nature of the debate uh, about, and it, and it turns it into a debate about what is essentially American and what does the United States, what version of the United States' um, past and future does it want to project uh, into foreign countries. And the Cold War also structures the stakes of that projection. Um, it's, you know, without the Cold War, it's not such a big issue. Uh, without the Cold War, Asia is not necessarily the primary focus of these efforts. Um, but, you know, Asia is central to this debate. Um, and, uh, you know, people are thinking very much uh, in, in a Cold War line all the way through. Uh, and so people often ask, you know, why is there no green revolution in Africa? And uh, Norman Borlaug has recently given an address to that effect in Washington, D.C. And the reason is that there was no Cold War. Africa in the 1950s. Um, you know, so people weren't, weren't thinking about this then. One of the uh, <coughs> excuse me, dominant <coughs> concepts in the literature in U.S. interaction with the third world is nationalism, and specifically the question of to what extent American officials properly understood nationalism as a political force. Mm -hmm. Uh, they do see uh, kind of nationalism um, uh, 
uh, as a force as being uh, shaped by this, this, um, um, these kind of economic forces that they see developing. Uh, so um, later you have a discussion about constructive nationalism versus, um, I forget what they call it, messianic nationalism, uh, in which constructive nationalism is basically framed as a kind of nationalism that seeks you know, higher productivity and GNP as its primary expression. Um, but you also see within this land reform debate a sense that um, the way in which we make farmers into good nationalists is by giving them a stake in the polity. And the way you give them a stake in it is by giving them some land. And that creates a natural relationship between um, them and the, uh, and the state. In a way, these development experts were the first subaltern studies people. Because this is the problem that subaltern studies gropes to understand is the post-colonial condition in which you have nations that emerge in which there are subaltern populations which have no genuine commitment to the nation and in which the nation itself has no genuine relationship with them. It's a completely artificial relationship between these large subaltern populations and the, uh, and the state. And so what land reform experts and what development experts are really trying to do is to come up with a concept that would explain the proper relation between the peasantry and the state. Um, and uh, the relationship that, uh, that uh, Walt Whitman Rostow comes out with in the very midst of the Ladishinsky case, he publishes uh, an article uh, in uh, Harper's Magazine called Marx Was a City Boy, in which he argues that, in fact, communism doesn't understand the rural sphere either. They don't get it. Uh, and they don't get it because what they're trying to do is to uh, change and reorganize the life of the farmer. And what, uh, what you need to do is turn the farmer the peasant into a consumer. That's what the farmer wants to be, he says. Um, and that once consumer goods are supplied, once you establish a correct relationship between city and country, which would be large supplies of food moving from farms to the city, providing cheap uh, wages in the city, and therefore cheap consumer goods, which can be sent back to the countryside, then you will have established a takeoff economy. What was the messianic nationalism sort of a Nasser style? Uh, That's right. And, and, and guess who the uh, constructive nationalists are? Indira, Marcos, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, some people Sukarno um, to some extent. Have yeah. already slipped away because Suharto. classes begin here in about 10 minutes. Maybe time for one more question if anyone has one. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mark has said this quite, uh, everybody agrees with him, that the famines are political, uh, political events that have political causes, but the starvation that was in the film, mm -hmm. uh, that, that uh, hovered for so much of the Asian population, yeah. and was poverty related, yeah. you, you addressed that by achieving development, raising incomes, and or bringing down. Well, I think that's a very important point, and those, those choices, uh, and there's a moment in 19, late 1966 when Lyndon Johnson chooses to call famine in, uh, an event in India a famine. Uh, and uh, India is arguing in return that this isn't famine. This is everyday starvation. Um, this is, this is you know, the normal standard of living here. 
Uh, and there's this, there's this debate which takes place. And in fact, uh, the way it pans out is that the United States declares the Bihar famine to be in a state of existence um, in December of 1966. India doesn't actually declare it as a famine until the following spring, spring of 1967. And according to Indian official statistics, no one died in that famine. So what happens when you hold a famine and nobody comes? That's what they are. They argue that, uh, in fact, that it was, and, and in fact, there's no medical category uh, of dying of starvation. You know, um, when you die of starvation, you do die of tuberculosis and other things. Um, you die of opportunistic diseases. So medical records contain no data on famine. So actually, I, I have a little chapter. Uh, about kind of the measurement of famine, you know, the various ways in which the British measured famine and the Indians measured famine and the Americans measured famine. Uh, and it's, it, it's quite interesting, the differences in the way in which knowledge moves within the international system. Um, the British ways of measuring famine kind of took knowledge about famines from a local area and then spilled it out so that, you know, months after the famine had been uh, uh, in full cry and declared in India, it would wind up finally on the front page of the London Times, whereas in the United States, we predicted famines uh, a year or so ahead of time based on caloric deficits and told governments that they were about to have a famine. Go ahead. Mm -hmm.